Well, good morning. Marriage can be so encouraging. Can't it? Sometimes it may be a little discouraging, but sometimes very encouraging. This morning, my wife asked me before she said, um, before I left, she said, um, well, how, how's the sermon preparation this week and how did it go? And I said, well, I think it's a, it's a little long this morning. I said, uh, you know, Daniel left me 16 verses to talk about. She goes, you're so easy to listen to. It'll be just fine. And I was like, you know what? I think I'll have you guys out by about 1.15 today. I was so encouraged. You know, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning and continue the series. This is part four on marriage, faith, and sex. And there is a lot to cover. I'm not sure how far we'll get. But listen, if it goes too long, I'll just, I'll look at her and she kind of has a good gauge on whether or not you guys are still following. So I'll know when to cut it off. You know, whenever I was first a Bible student, talking about marriage, <laughs> I was first a Bible student at SBU, I had this class on biblical interpretation. It's, it's called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics just helps you. In fact, there's a, a famous book called The Hermeneutical Spiral. But in this book, it teaches you how to accurately um, interpret the scriptures in light of their context because there's a lot of barriers for us today in understanding a Bible that was written, I mean, the newest parts of the Bible were written 2,000 years ago, right? And when you look at the Old Testament, it's even further back than that. And so you've got this huge time gap between when we're reading it today and when the original authors wrote it. So To understand better what the scriptures are saying, you take this class called hermeneutics and you learn the value of like understanding that there's a culture difference uh, between the writing of uh, the New Testament or the Old Testament and today. There's also a language barrier as well, isn't there? Uh, Koine Greek was a specific type of Greek that the New Testament was written in, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so there are these barriers that language presents as well. So there's the time factor, there's the culture factor, there's the language factor. And so getting at the truth of Scripture sometimes is very hard. And a pastor learned this one day, the the difference in interpretation between the time that we live in now versus what the Scriptures originally were intended to mean. In one of my classes, a pastor teaching the class told the story about a lady who had come to his office and had said, you know, I'm ready to leave my husband. He goes, well, wait a minute, uh, sit down, let's, let's talk about this. She said, yeah, I'm ready to divorce him, and I have, uh, the scriptures are there to back me up. And he said, well, okay, well, there are certain reasons that the scriptures might permit someone to leave, okay? And so let's look at those. And she goes, I've got all I need in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. And, and, and he said, well, wait a minute, before we get to that, and she said, well, I've found this uh, new guy, and the Bible's telling me I can leave my husband and be with him. He says, well, wait a minute, what does Ephesians 4.24 say? And she said, it says, put on the new man, right? (laughs) That is not what Paul was talking about. So understanding things in their proper context, right, are very critical as it comes to marriage, dating, and sex. Now listen, there's a lot of voices out there today, isn't there? Uh, I was in here last week when Pastor Daniel was talking. There's a lot of voices out there, a lot of noise about sex and dating and marriage and all these different views, but thank God we have the Bible, amen, that tells us it's the final authority. 
And the scriptures tell us what marriage should look like. And one of Paul's longest chapters is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, full of all kinds of little nuggets about marriage and relationships. So praise God for that. In our text today, Paul is answering questions that the Corinthians had originally asked him. And so you're kind of only getting half of a conversation. Um, There was a letter written from the Corinthians to Paul, and Paul's letter here in 1 Corinthians is answers to their questions. We don't have their questions, we don't have their letter, but we can kind of deduce from his answers what they must have asked. And so here are some things that we'll look at today, and I'm not sure, honestly, how far we're going to get, because it really is a lot. And I know I'm easy to listen to, honey, but I'm not going to take advantage of anybody in the room. So the first question might have been this, that they asked Paul, is abstinence from sex a good thing? The second question would have been something like this, does a wife have a right to sex with her husband? And what if he doesn't want to have sex? What about the wife? What if she doesn't want to? Must she? Does he have a right? Here's the fourth question, is God okay with a person remaining single? Or must they be married? After all, the scripture said it's not good for man to be alone. Number five, must widows get remarried? Number six, if a couple is having problems, is it okay for them to divorce or for one of them to leave the other? There's a lot here, isn't there? Number seven, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, does the Christian have the right to divorce the unbeliever? Good question. Number eight, What if the unbeliever abandons and divorces the Christian? Is it okay for the Christian to remarry? So you'll see all of these things talked about in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll read the word of God together here in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say... I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in a mixed up culture that's got all these voices and talking heads out there that we can come back to the bedrock, the solid rock of the word of God and to a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And also a God whose mercy is more. Because we know when we deal with issues like this and sexual temptation and and sexual immorality and all this stuff, there's no one in the room who's not guilty. And we thank you that your mercy is more. We pray that today as we look at this text that uh, we would be very careful with it, um, that um, we would glean some truth that would apply to our lives and help us, Lord, then to walk in the truth of your word. We thank you, God, for just this time to meet in this free country to gather and to corporately worship you. Help us to never take that for granted. And Lord, we pray that you would just move in this place this morning, convict our hearts, draw us closer to you, and remind us again, God, that your mercy is more than all of our sin. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right, you can be seated. Paul starts off here by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, that's how we know they wrote a letter to Paul, and he's answering them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some translations say to not touch a woman, but it's the same meaning. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, Paul also talks about the gift of singleness. And listen, Next week, Pastor Daniel's sermon, he told me to prep you, is going to be all about the gift of singleness. But unless you have the gift of singleness, you should be carefully, thoughtfully, listen young people, watching and eventually pursuing a relationship with another believer of the opposite sex. Now listen to that, and moms and dads too, thoughtfully, carefully watching, right? watch those people of the other sex who are in church who know God to think about a relationship with them as a possibility. Notice that Paul starts off by saying that no sexual activity at all is a good thing. Abstinence is good. Amen? Oh, man, that's terrible. Now, our culture would say the opposite today, so I need to hear from God's people. Like, if you believe what Paul said is true today abstinence in certain contexts, right? You're not married and you're a Christian. uh, But even if you're a non-Christian, abstinence is a good thing. Amen? Oh, that's a little bit better, but uh, you'll get there. You'll get there. Abstinence is good. Our culture today screams the opposite at every level and tells our young people, if you are abstinence, if you're in abstinence or you're, you're abstinent, that you are not enjoying life the way that you should. You're missing out on something great. And God, uh, God would never tell people to be abstinence. 
Our culture today tells them that they cannot enjoy life without indulging in sexual activity, and this is just not true. Abstinence is a good thing. And listen to this, as you look at your outline, if you're in your app, abstinence is the only option for believers who are unmarried and for believers who are called to singleness. Do you notice that? If you're not married, then abstinence is the option for you. Some of you are like, I need to get married quickly, right? Okay? And it's also the only option for those who are single. This is God's word, right? Because sex and sexual activity is such a holy, sacred thing. And like Daniel talked about last week, it's not just a physical act, right? There's a spiritual side to it, a connecting that comes all the way back from our original creation in Genesis 2, where the two become one flesh, And that's not just talking about having children. There's something special that is shared and sacred within the bonds of sexual activity. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, Paul tells us each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So if you notice in the text here that sexual temptation is actually one of the drivers toward the marriage relationship. It's an activity that's to be done within marriage. We don't go through a forest and light fires everywhere, right? If you're out on a camping trip, you make a little place with some rocks in a circle, hopefully, and you burn the fire right there, right? In our houses, we don't just light fires everywhere. Fires go in the fireplace. Sex is one of those things that has its proper domain, and that's within the marriage relationship. So while abstinence is good for And the only option for those who are unmarried, for those who are burning with passion, and I would say the majority of human beings, marriage is your option for sexual expression. If you're not married, you should not be having a sexual relationship with anyone. So young men, it's time to get to work on finding that godly woman. But don't worry, I've got some advice for you and I can help you, okay? I set up people all the time, by the way. Now, here's what's interesting in our culture today. If you look back, and I think there are some trends here that really are interesting to look at and consider. In 1950, the median age for men to get married was 23, and for women, it was 20. That was in 1950. That was a pretty good spell ago. In 1980, the median age for men to get married was 24.7, and for women, it was 22. Oh, There you go. And uh, you can look that every year it has actually continued to increase the longer males and females are staying single. Okay, so today it's actually, I think it's like right at 31 for men in 2023 and about 29 uh, for women. If you look up these statistics, there is never a not, not a year between 1980 and today where it didn't increase some. People are staying unmarried for longer and longer. Now, there's a lot of reasons why this is probably happening, but definitely the distractions that are all around us today and the non-commitment that is created from things like pornography and different avenues for people to like have sexual expression is keeping people further and further apart. We also have these things, I call them our cultural you gotas. You gotas. You gotta go to high school. You gotta go to college. You gotta get a master's degree. 
Some of you got to get a doctorate. Some of you got to get a job after that, and then you got to get stable. You got to have some money in your bank account, and then you got to think about marriage, right? All these you got us, right? But when we boil it down and we look at Scripture, and I want to be careful here. I don't want to go against anybody here. Paul says, you got to be holy. So if young people are waiting, and maybe they hit puberty at the age of 13, they're going to wait another 18 years, and we're telling them, wait until you're 31, or we're seeing this trend in our culture. Do you think that's realistic for young people to stay sexually pure in this culture? No way. Amen? It's a setup for disaster. This doesn't mean that people aren't interested in sex anymore, okay? It means they're being fulfilled in other ways. And God has said the ultimate fulfillment comes through the marriage relationship. It's not okay for us to stay apart. Now, again, some people have the gift of singleness and those kind of things, and I'm not saying, but I am saying, like, there is a trend in our culture, and we put all these barriers sometimes in the way of these you got us before you can be married, but we got to remember that Paul said you got to be holy. And so it has to be taken into consideration, especially if you're burning with passion. The Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word pornea. Isn't that interesting? And it's the word we get the word pornography from. But in this context, it relates to any illicit sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. The word is actually broad in uh, the Greek context in the New Testament. But it refers in our word, or our word is used for pornography whenever we think of it that way. And many people today, I read an article this last week, many people today are finding their fulfillment in the isolation of pornography, and they're finding that they can find anything they want on the internet that's out there. They can have a need fulfilled without the baggage of relationship. That's the thought by a lot of young people today. Instead of the hard work of a relationship and finding sexual fulfillment within the bonds of marriage like God has designed it, they find that on the internet without any relationship. And that is not God's plan. And we've got to think as well, again, his mercy is more, right? Pornography is so pervasive. I, in my, I wrote a book a few years ago on, on parenting, and in the book I showed the story of the first time that I encountered uh, pornography. I still remember it like it was yesterday. I was nine years old, and, uh, <laughs> and I was weed-eating. Uh, I had a little weed-eater, and I used to try to make some money mowing grass. Anybody else do that whenever you were little? Yeah. It was definitely dangerous for me to have the weed-eater and mowing at that age. But I was out weed-eating, and I was out in this little place kind of behind these apartments, and I, and I hit this little, I was kind of getting in a corner with the, hitting the grass, and I hit this little magazine or something, and this stuff sprayed everywhere, and I looked down there. I was just nine years old. My eyes had not been opened yet, and I looked down there, and I was like, ooh, what's this? And I kind of weirded me out, and so I went back to weed eating, and then about three or four minutes later, I was kind of like, what was that? And uh, I went back to have a second look at nine years old right? Now, that's a kid who hadn't hit puberty yet, but the allure, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, that God is just kind of wired in the fabric in the DNA. At first, I'm like, ugh. But a few minutes later, I was kind of like, I think I might need to see that a little bit more and just check it out so I know what's going on here, right? Now, 
The age of awakening comes, and after that, where does my mind go back to that experience? Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's all around us today. And now it's so easy to get your hands on. When I was a kid, it wasn't. But now it's so easy to get your hands on. And all that does, though, is pull you away from the way God created relationship, right? And so we have to be honest, open. We have to be repetitive as Christians. We have to remember that his mercy is more, but also remember that we need to be about marriage. Sex is not to be withheld in marriage, but given as a blessing to the other. Paul says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Boy, that doesn't sound politically correct, right? The man's got authority over his wife's body. The wife has authority over her husband's body. That's not going to preach out in the world today, but this is what Paul is saying. It seems like it should go without saying, but because of our culture today, I need to mention a few things. This passage is not giving either spouse the right to forcibly take sex from the other. If that is the thought that comes into someone's mind while reading this text, they've missed the entire point. The emphasis here is not that my body is to be taken by my spouse, rather the emphasis is that my body is to be given to my spouse sacrificially. That's what this is all about, right? You can see the gospel in this, that I'm open and I'm willing as a husband or a wife to bring the other sexual pleasure. I've given myself to them, and because of that, I make myself available for their needs. I don't have a right over my body. My wife does. She doesn't have a right over her body. I do. And I need to think that way so that whenever I think, man, I don't really feel like that right now, I'm thinking, you know what? I want to please her. I'm going to sacrificially give and vice versa. Definitely more vice versa, by the way. (laughs) Just kidding. Okay. Come on. You got to laugh. You got to laugh. Paul says that each spouse has a conjugal right to the other. Paul goes on to say that when we've entered the marriage relationship, we've given authority to the other over our body. I shouldn't say things like that. It just comes out. (laughs) Husbands, you cannot always be distracted by your work. Your wife has a right to your body. Wives, you can't hold out on your husband because he doesn't put the clothes in the hamper. Okay? It doesn't mean, guys, you shouldn't. Put it away. But your husband has a right to your body. And we see this. We deal with a, you know, a lot of marriage counseling and stuff through the years and just seeing this. Um, these are real issues. We kind of joke about them. But in all honesty, what happens is if we're not careful. We, we build these little barriers between ourselves over issues, and we withhold ourselves. We may not even know that we're withholding ourselves from the spouse Um, but we are because of issues that have been not dealt with. This passage is never used to justify abuse. Both spouses have authority over the other's body. But the obligations of giving to the other is what Paul is talking about, and that's mutual. It should go both ways. Both have a duty to fulfill the other. This doesn't mean you can force yourself on the other if they are ill or impaired, but you know you can't just always say, I have a headache. Not what Paul is thinking about, though. Paul is saying, in general, unless there's some real excuse here, fulfill your sexual duties to the other. Be sacrificial. Just love the other person enough. 
The bonds of marriage is where that's supposed to be. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Scribble that down if you're taking notes today. Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I've always wanted to read that verse when I was preaching, and this is the first chance I've ever got. (laughs) See, it's never okay to weaponize sex. Using sex as a weapon can lead to some real deep anger and resentment issues by the other spouse. Don't withhold from the other if you're able to complete the act. It's not a good idea. It can lead to resentment that lasts for years, and tons of baggage can come out of that. In fact, bitterness can grow toward a spouse that is holding out. When a spouse is not fulfilling or wanting their spouse sexually, the unfulfilled spouse will feel isolated, unloved, unwanted, and unfulfilled. You've got to remember that. And never in history have we lived in a time where there are so many other places, listen, for a person to go to be fulfilled sexually. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it can wreck your marriage. It's a big deal. Give your body to the other. It's very important today. If they go unfulfilled, isolated, unloved, unwanted, and unfulfilled, this is a recipe for disaster in any marriage. If you aren't sexually fulfilling your spouse and you don't have a good excuse and you know whether or not you are, you need, you're in sin and you need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness and begin to pursue the other one lovingly. Look to lovingly fulfill the sexual needs of your spouse. Give sex as a gift to your mate. Now, some will say, well, I've just lost that love and feeling, right? With Tom Cruise. Uh, Or how about this one, the old country song? I know she still loves me, but I don't think she likes me anymore. Okay? Well, here's the deal, Christian. I can't sing worth a darn. (laughs) Here's the thing. We're all called to do things as believers that are hard I'm not going to make it easy. It's not easy following Jesus, is it? It's not easy loving your enemies. It's not easy being sacrificial. It's not. This idea that like all your troubles are going to be cured when you follow Jesus and it's going to be easy. The only thing, listen, it's not easy. And this can be a very difficult subject within the marriage relationship, okay? It's not easy to be sacrificial, but you need to give your bodies to each other in that context, We're called to do things as believers that are just tough. We've got to pick up our cross daily. In C.S. Lewis' famous book, The Screwtape Letters, the enemy, which is a demon, has managed to pollute the minds of Christians. And here's what he's taught them. I think this is really interesting. The demons have gotten the, the Christians to believe these three things, which is really interesting. Number one, that a curious and usually short lived experience, which they call being in love, is the only respectable ground for marriage. If you're in love, then you want to be married. But if you're not in love, number two, that marriage can and ought to render this excitement permanent. You remember the excitement, the starry-eyed when you first saw her, right? 
And when he first, when, you know, you saw each other and it was so exciting just to go on a date and, and, and then they reached over and touched your hand. Do you remember that first time? It was a little tingles, right? All that kind of stuff for the first. Well, that stuff goes away, right? It, it goes away. And the enemy has got us to believe, well, if those things go away, then I must not be in love anymore, right? Forgetting the Christian obligation, listen, and the Christian command to love, right? Command. It's great when feelings follow, isn't it? But we're commanded to love even our enemies. And then number three, that a marriage which does not do these things, render excitement, and this short-lived being in love experience is no longer binding. That's what our culture has gotten us to believe. Our feelings are liars, amen? You know, the Romans, they used to have this saying, it was a Latin phrase, mundus vult decepi, and it meant this, the world wants to be deceived. We're liars, our hearts are liars, they lie to us. They take us down paths we shouldn't go. Last week I sat in here and, you know, Daniel quoted that verse out of Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a good one for us all to memorize about the heart, the wickedness of the heart. Who can understand it? It's a fickle thing. Feelings are fickle things. But Paul says here, do not deprive one another. Have sex is what Paul is saying in the marriage relationship and lots of it. You heard it here first. Okay. All right. Except, he says, perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you might, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? So there, there is this idea that within the marriage relationship, though, that, that a husband and wife would say, you know what, we're going to take a break, like a fast. Has anybody ever fasted from food? Right? Nobody? <laughs> I need two more. Okay. Fasting from food, fasting, media fast. Anybody ever done a media fast? Some you need to. I walk through the halls, right? We all need to. So media, so this is just a, another way where you can fast from something that gives great enjoyment, right? To, to maybe commit more to, to the Lord, your heart. But he's saying only do it for a limited time. He says, the purpose of a husband and wife not having sex in the context Paul gives here is by agreement from both spouses and for a limited time. You can't get to the end of the month, right? And the, the husband say, what's, what's the deal? Oh, well, I'm sorry, I was just fasting, right? That's not how that works. It's by agreement and for a limited time. The longer a married couple goes without having sex, the greater the risk of somebody falling into sexual sin is. We see the practice of fasting for spiritual purposes all over the scriptures. In fact, you can see this, uh, the fasting from sex in 1 Samuel chapter 21. It's for agreement, or by agreement and for a limited time. Now, Paul goes on here to give some more marital advice uh, from himself and also from Jesus, beginning with verse 10. Not sure how far we're going to get here, but we're going to keep going. He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. When Paul says, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, he is saying that this is actual teaching from Jesus' mouth that has been handed down. 
Okay? It doesn't mean when Paul says, well, now I'm saying this, not the Lord. It doesn't mean that he's not filled with the Spirit. What he's saying is this is actual teaching from Jesus. I'm not telling you this, but the Lord said this, and we know he said this. Paul was a contemporary of Jesus. He either heard it or was handed down to him by the apostles. Okay? Generally speaking, it's never good for a husband and wife to separate. If this has happened, she doesn't have the right to put on the new man, right? And he shouldn't immediately think, well, that's it. I've got a divorce her. She's left me. From Jesus' own mouth here, there should be every attempt possible at reconciliation. Every attempt possible. Because that was the plan from the beginning. And Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of Matthew. Marriages are meant to be permanent. Don't get married if you don't plan on staying married once you've lost that love and feeling. That's a huge mistake. Paul goes on to say to the rest, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, we live in a messy world, right? And many times there's a couple that's married, they're both unbelievers, and one of them comes to faith in the gospel. And this has obviously happened in the Corinthian church. And so the question is, well, wait a minute, my spouse isn't a believer, maybe, maybe I should just go ahead and find a new believer. You know, Fred there at church, he's a believer and he's single, maybe, you know, something could happen here. No, Paul's saying, if they consent to stay with you, you don't have the right to just leave them because they're not a believer, Paul says, if the unbeliever consents to live with you, you should not divorce them in this situation at all. Now, this is not saying we should missionary date with the intent of converting someone to Christianity. It's not what it's saying. Again, remember what's happening here. You have two people who are unbelievers. One comes to faith in the gospel. The other doesn't. What do I do now? Paul's saying, if they consent to stay in that situation, don't you dare try to divorce them. And he's going to give us reasons why here in just a minute. For the unbelieving husband, verse 14, is made holy because of his wife. Here it is. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, again, this is speaking of someone who is an unbeliever, married another unbeliever, but has now come to faith. If they, the unbeliever, consents to stay in that situation, it says here, that the other person is made holy. Does that mean like they're born again now because I am? Is that what Paul's talking about? Wow, so since I'm holy in the Lord and I'm married to this unbeliever, now they get like a free ticket to heaven. They're holy. They're, everything's good, right? And even my kids, they're, they're holy. Wow, that's awesome. I get saved and everybody else gets saved, right? That's not what he's saying uh, at all. The word holy also within context, again, remember hermeneutics, right? It means set apart. The associations, the prayers, the benefits that the unbeliever would get by being married to a believer has set them apart in comparison to an unbeliever being married to another unbeliever. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this so that you can kind of get it down in your mind what, what Paul is saying here. So what does it mean that they're holy? Here's what it means. And some of you have probably heard this. Has anybody ever heard of a guy named Lee Strobel? Who's heard of Lee Strobel? So Lee Strobel... He worked for the Chicago Tribune. He was a hardcore atheist, if you remember. And there's a movie on his, his life, he and his wife. Um, I think it's called maybe The Case for Faith. But anyway, in the movie, it's a real-life story about when his wife comes to faith in the gospel. And his wife begins patiently 
right, prodding him. She begins going to church, praying for him that he would give his life to Jesus. Well, he was a committed atheist. He didn't believe in the historical Jesus at all. But what happened is that she patiently, lovingly brought him along. Listen, she was making him holy. He was set apart with these prayers, with the church group that was praying for him. What happened is eventually he began to try to figure out, was this historical Jesus real? Did he really die on a cross? Did he really raise again? And as Lee Strobel began to study, he began to become impressed with the evidence that was there for the historical Jesus and the fact that he was the savior of the world. And eventually, what happened to Lee Strobel? He was born again because of his wife staying with the unbeliever. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He was made holy in that situation. It doesn't mean he was born again, but he was subject to her challenges, patience, encouragement, and prayers. So if you're yoked, maybe you came to faith and you were married to an unbeliever, don't leave them if they consent to live with you. Pray, be patient. God has put you in a situation where they're holy because of your presence. Now, what about the children here? Are they born again because the parents are? Paul says they're holy. Again, the same thing is true here as well. There are promises in the gospel that are handed down generationally to believing parents that will, be, that will go on and be passed on to their children. So again, they're set apart. If you have two unbelieving sp- uh, husband and wife that are unbelieving, they're not gonna raise their kids to love the Lord, Right? But if you have one who comes to faith, that one can pour into the child and who knows what can happen. Perfect example of this is Timothy in the New Testament. Father was an unbeliever, but his mother and his grandmother, both believers in the gospel, and Timothy ended up being a believer as well. Do you understand what Paul's saying here? He's not saying they're born again because their parents are. He's saying they're holy, they're set apart because one of the spouses has a love relationship with Jesus. But if the unbelieving partner separates, I might get through this. I'm only negative 43 seconds up there. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Did you notice that? So there are really three reasons we believe are biblical for the possibility of divorce. The first one is sexual immorality, which we don't have time to go into. That's in Matthew's gospel, and Jesus says that. The second one, this scripture says that the, if the unbeliever departs, if they leave and abandon the believer, those people are called to peace. Okay? Those Christians are called to peace. And the third option is <clears throat> death. <laughs> okay? Then you can get remarried. But those are three ways for a believer um, to be in a relationship, they were married, now they're not married, they can be remarried if the unbeliever departs. Now, it is interesting as well in this text, um, it says here, you are called to peace. This leaves the door open for the believer to marry again in the future, but only in the Lord. If you're going to be remarried after a death or after the unbeliever has left you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, which we don't have time to go into all of that, says to be married in the Lord if you're going to be remarried. Now, there's a textual variant here as well that is real interesting, and I won't get into all of this, but uh, uh, into great detail. But when it says that um, if the unbeliever departs, uh, they are called to peace, the Christian is called to peace, um, there's a variant in there that appears a lot where Paul says, if the unbeliever departs, 
we are called to peace. We know Paul was a rabbi and he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And if he was a rabbi and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he had to be married. And there's a lot of thought that possibly Paul was left by an unbelieving wife. And so even Paul may have been divorced. I, I can't prove that, but there's, there's a lot of passages that say we are called to peace. He includes himself. He doesn't say they are called to peace. He says we are called to peace in such instances. Now, another great reason to, for, for an unbeliever to stay married to, um, or for a believer to stay uh, married to their unbelieving spouse. I have some good friends in Farmington, in the Farmington area. This is a really cool story as well. I can't go into all the details, but it was really awesome. She became a believer. Her husband was a hardcore atheist. This is really cool. God, what God did in using her as she patiently began to kind of prod him, pray for him, is he came to faith in the gospel. And now this couple is passionate about doing ministry all around the world. And they have a well drilling business where they drill wells for the poor all around the world and share the gospel of Jesus. So for those of you who may be like, but he, he's never going to listen, or she's never going to know God. It's not just a story about Lee Strobel. This is happening all around us. You be faithful to what God's word says, and God will show himself to be powerful in your life. If you're a believer today and you are in a marriage with an unbeliever, you have to hang in there. If they consent to stay with you, you don't have the right to divorce them. Rather, pray for your unbelieving spouse, live faithfully and love mightily, and who knows, the Lord may use you to bring them to faith in the gospel. Now, as we get ready to close, I'm four minutes and 27 seconds over here. As we get ready to close, listen, there's nobody in the room throwing stones at anybody, okay? Like, we, we have all dealt with sexual temptation in one way or another. We've all messed up. There's been divorce. There's been mistakes made. But do you remember what we sang? His mercy is what? Do you believe that this morning? Amen. His mercy is more. We are sexually broken people. We're messed up. None of us have done it perfectly. Okay? But his mercy is more. And that's why at Canaan we celebrate the gospel. Because Jesus says, come to me. I did it perfectly. You don't have to do it perfectly. And your trust in me brings your justification and your salvation. Your trust in him alone. Some of you may be battling addictions right now, like Daniel talked about last week. You may be asking that question. I don't think I can hang in there anymore with this unbelieving spouse. You might be, you know, noticing that woman at work or that man at work and your eye is kind of drifting. Listen, Listen, God has called you to be holy at the same time. We're grateful for mercy, but we have the guidebook. And we need to be holy people like God has called us to. When we fail, we repent. We ask for forgiveness. But we want to treat grace like a net that's there to catch us, right? Nobody goes to watch trapeze artists jump on the little rope and just jump in the net every time, right? Right? We should try to stay hooked in. We should try to stay and perform like God wants us to. But we know when we fail, that mercy, that net is there to catch us. Would you all stand with me? We're gonna, I'm going to pray.
We're going to have a time of commitment. This is a time for you to come and pray. You can pray where you're seated, but this altar is always open to pray for marriages, to pray for people who are hurting and broken, um, to pray for your own marriage, your own wife, maybe your, uh, your husband or an addiction, a struggle. We're going to have prayer counselors that are up here. You can ask them to pray with you or for you. Um, and I'm just going to close this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. Again, we thank you for your word, your guidebook. We pray that we would be so faithful, God, to what you've called us to as Christians. But at the same time, we know we've got to have mercy. Without it, we are lost in our sin. And so, Lord, we, we ask for your Holy Spirit just to move in this place, convict us of our sin, our failure when it comes to sex and marriage. Help us to be better husbands, better wives. Help us to be pure in our thoughts. Help us to be good repenters. Help us to be good at confessing, taking responsibility. And help us to be good, Lord, at trusting that your mercy is more. Not constantly living in self-condemnation, but reminding ourselves of the cross and that you took our punishment. Lord, just bless our time as we commit to you uh, in different areas. In Jesus' name, amen.